0: an issue for all women. Oi and indeed oi, Mickey here welcoming you to this week's Sunday Chops. Come on in, grab a cup of tea and have a think about your favourite tree. Yep, this week we are all about the arboreal as I chat with the very excellent Eric Anderson. If you're a fan of the BBC's long-running, much-loved gardener's world, then you'll recognise Eric from there. But if not, I've no doubt you'll still be fascinated in what Arit, a garden designer, podcaster, environmentalist and self-professed tree hugger, has to say about trees and our relationship to, and indeed relationships with them, and how vital that connection is. Arit's new book, The Essential Tree Selection Guide, written in association with Kew Gardens, is a brilliant, comprehensive, jargon-free look at how which tree we choose to plant where really matters. I can't emphasise that enough. It really matters as well as being a tree bible when it comes to their climate resilience, carbon storage and other ecosystem benefits. It's also got loads of really, really beautiful pictures of gorgeous trees in it. Mm -mm -mm. It was a genuine joy to talk to Arit, whose expertise is surpassed only by her charm and passion for the planet and its greenery and, you know, the people who live on it. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Arit Anderson, garden designer, presenter on BBC Gardener's World, host of the Growing Greener podcast, passionate environmentalist, and alongside Henrik Huckman, co-author of new book, The Essential Tree Selection Guides. It's a mouthful. (laughs) Arit, hello. Hello, and how are you, Mickey? I'm all right, thank you. Trees. I know it makes me sound really simple, but I love trees. I was so excited to talk to you. <laughs> well that's good. I'm glad you love trees. That's a good start. <laughs> Tell me about the book and why it is so needed. Well, this book came about
1: in winter at one time. A publisher came and spoke to me and said, Would you like to do a book? And if so, what about? And I was like, mm, actually, yeah, I'd like to do a book about trees, actually. And I think as somebody who gets to do garden design and obviously has to look at plant selection, etc. And there are some great tree books out there, but we're in a changing climate, as people know, and, and, and obviously experiencing every day. And you know, trees are a huge investment, not just financially into the garden, but they're there for the long term. And I just felt that there wasn't really a book out there at this time that was telling us about how trees are going to need to adapt in a changing climate. They they can't just up sticks and move. Um you know, they've got those good old roots that keep them down. And so I really wanted to hear a bit more about that and to sort of see that written more about. And I come across Henrik, bless his surname, because we all good. I always get it wrong, Henrik. <laughs> so he'll tell me off. And I'd seen Henrik do a talk and I love his approach and how he talks about trees. Think like a tree. Yes. Was kind of one of the key things that he said. And, and I can kind of go into a bit more detail about that in a minute. And I think that it would have been my first book and, you know, a bit nervous and I thought, and actually it will take a lot of research and the things that I would want to talk about, I'm like, well, I'll have gone and spoken to somebody about it and then come back and reported on it. And Henrik has got a great personality and we've got on very well and I said to him, hey, come on, your work at the moment is, a lot of it is published in Swedish and it's not in, not in English on our bookstores. So we collaborated on it and That's why it come about, because at the moment, with the need for trees, trees can be part of the climate solution. They're not the only thing. But a lot of emphasis is put on trees, and therefore we really felt that people need to understand what trees do, what they are, and how they function so that they can choose the right tree, the right place, and therefore then they can deliver all the wonderful benefits that
0: they have. Absolutely. I did have it as quite a big question on my list. Can trees save us? I mean, it feels like a lot of pressure (laughs) for trees. They're already working very hard. Well, they work
1: incredibly hard and, you know, they are the lungs of our world. They do provide the oxygen-giving, life-giving gas that we need. They absorb CO2 out of the atmosphere. And, and store it in their roots, amongst many other things, which I'm sure we'll be talking about. And can they save us? They can definitely be part of the solution. Uh-huh. The, the problem is, people feel that this kind of three trillion, you know, billions and numbers that we're talking about across the world of planting that needs to happen. There are trees that need to happen for the future. We have to make sure that they're the future, but we really have to maintain the ones we've got and understand what we're living with. So, felling trees in our beautiful Amazon and everything you know they've taken years hundreds of years Uh to get to the maturity to give us all of the functionality that they have and therefore a brand new sapling can't possibly give us the oxygen that we need it can't give us all of the other ecosystem services and I'll explain that in a moment that trees give when they become mature so it's really making sure that people understand that, yeah, great, they, they have a role, massive role to play, that they have to be of a certain age and, and and of a certain capacity to be able to deliver those benefits.
0: That's a time game then. So how do we sort of approach that now? Yeah. There's a Chinese proverb
1: that says the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and the next best time is today. Yeah. So, you know, we, we must... Plant trees. Yes, of course we have, we must. But what we really have to do is also look after the ones that we've got. Obviously, in the news, everybody got very emotionally charged by the Sycamore Gap tree that yeah. came down that was felled quite sadly near had Hadrian's Wall on the National Trust land. And yes, it is important that people were moved by that. There's emotional attachment to trees. You know, people talk about tree hugging and, you know, all of that as if it's some hippie old thing. There are emotional attachments to trees because they are the constants or can be part of the constants within our landscape, within our lives. Certain things happen. I've certainly got my own stories about trees when I was younger. We don't have an emotional attachment to something. We don't care about it. Uh And in order for us to care, we need to understand what these fabulous standing tall ones, as the Native American Indians call them, what they do for us. So I touched on the word ecosystem services. Now, that's not particularly a term that's used very much in the mainstream. It's very much professionals use it in terms of the landscape and what it can do for us. It sounds pretty uh, human-centric, quite anthropogenic, because it's about the services that the ecosystem can deliver for us, but also for other species as well. Of course, yeah. But those ecosystem services, especially for trees, a lot of those services don't come about until, like I said, before maturity. So they get split into kind of four basic sort of sections. So whether it's the cultural ecosystem services, something like the Sycamore gap tree, you know, the placemaking of, tr- of what they do for yeah. us. The ties and tradition that we have to trees, you know, the folkloric sort of scenario, for example. They have provisioning ecosystem services. So they quite literally provide fruit and food and timber for us. They have supporting services, so they are fantastic at habitats for you know for thousands of species of insects and birds and mammals and wildlife that um, sit with them um, and obviously support us by the life-giving oxygen, for example. And then there's regulating, regulating ecosystem services, and those are things that especially, I, I guess, in um, our changing world and people are experiencing it now, they are things like regulating um, our air quality regulating flooding, so flood mitigation, offering air cooling by the transpiration that the leaves do, the cooling of our cities with the mm, shade cover absolutely. that they do as well. So all of these services, plus, 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 those trees, independent on what tree you choose, can give all of these benefits to us. And that's why we need to care. Without trees in our world, we, we can't function. We wouldn't be here. End of, really. The climate crisis, I think, has brought trees back into the the main frame of life you know our other massive great big carbon sink is peat box that's another uh podcast for another day mickey um <laughs> that sink a lot of carbon and that are incredibly important but trees obviously are what we see on a day-to-day basis and it's what we can get involved in and be part of in terms of their care and protection and futurizing them for that old phrase future generations
0: all right, Ari. I mean, I was on board already, but I'm even more on board now. <laughs> and so I'd like you to tap into Henrik and tell me how <laughs> to think like a tree. Yes. Well, good old
1: Henrik. So he had, there's lots of different parts throughout the book. So the first section, we talk about ecosystem services, understanding, really understanding the benefits the trees give to us. Some of them we just don't think about or, you know, we're just not aware of. And then in order to be able to then go, okay, so these are some of the benefits, say like, for example, flood mitigation, I had to understand how trees operate. So a lot of it goes back to understanding how a tree would operate in its natural environment, uh-huh. where it would you know we are shipping trees all around the world, um, you know, non-native trees that come and sit in our lovely landscape. That's great, but we have to understand how they operate and what their strategies are. For example. Trees can get grouped in many different ways. And one of the kind of key groupings will be about uh, pioneer species. And those pioneer species, things like our, our birch or poplar trees, those are the sorts of trees that if you had like a wasteland of, you know, just sort of a, there was nothing o- o- at all around, those sorts of trees get in there first. They right. go, right, great. Right. I've got all the resources. I've got the water. I've got the light. I can get access to the food. So what they want to do is they want to get off to grow really, really quickly. They get their roots down and they shoot up to the light and they start making sure that they can photosynthesize, which is converting light into into food sources, like into carbohydrates and things. And they, they know how to quickly, if you like, get that forest system going.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And that's great. But that means if I'm going to be a fast grower and I've got to get going, I can't invest in my leaves. I can't have big old glossy, fat old gorgeous, luxurious <laughs> leaves. I've got to have pretty cheaper leaves that I've got to that are not going to cost a lot. If yeah. you like, we think of a tree of a banking system. That's what I loved about uh, Henrik when he explaining that, that my investment can't go into my leaves, can't really go into my bark because I'm not going to necessarily be here as long as the next group of trees I'm going to talk about. So I will be putting investment into my root system so I can grab the water availability and the nutrient availability while it's there. So they're the kind of pioneer species. And then you have the next succession of trees which are much more slow growing. And that'll be things like oak trees or yew trees. And they're there for the long term. They go, right, okay, we could be here for a thousand years. I need to make sure I've got properly decent quality bark system i've got a really strong deep roots even though my talkings become a slower you know I, i've got to kind of have these leaves that are going to be able to be really robust that each time i produce them that they can buffet every single sort of thing in environmental change that's occurring to them and what they tend to do is they'll grow slower and they'll grow almost like under is like the, the pioneer species i could talk to you about the fast growing trees they kind of almost act like the nursery for these yeah. slower growing trees that come under, you know, just very, very slowly. A literal really...
0: greenhouse.
1: And like a little kind of, yeah, like I guess like a little nursery and like a little greenhouse that protects them and keeps them kind of shaded and, and shaded and cool. But of course, over time, they will outgrow and they will take up the resource as they get bigger and kind of almost, if you could see here, some elbowing.
0: <laughs> the other the other pioneer trees out of the way. I'm excited for your kids' book about trees because it needs to happen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Those trees that have got like a more longevity around them. That's about like I said, the thinking like a tree, the way that a tree has to strategize. So, say for example, if I'm a tree that is something like an older an alder, not elder, older tree. Um, is one tree, for example, that can really tolerate flooding quite a bit, actually. And so why do some plants do that and some don't? Well, with the older tree, for example, and and Sir Henrik was telling me about some fabulous research that they have been doing on it, they submerged the roots of the tree for about 60 days and the tree didn't die. Wow! And what it kind of, I say, literally does is hold its breath. So it can hold its under the water and, and yeah, and waits it out. And what it will do is kind of if you like shut off that root system that's submerged in the water, because trees need oxygen and water as as well around their root system. So what they'll do is they'll they'll create um, little side shoots that come off a little bit further up the trunk so that they can still take in water at the water's edge they can get that bit of oxygen that is also needed in terms of keeping them survived. Clever trees. Very clever trees. So this kind of invitation to think like a tree, understand how trees work, why does it do that? That means the more that you can understand that when you're doing your tree selection, then you'll kind of go, right, I've got to think about those sorts of trees that can tolerate really high winds or that can tolerate, you know, drought, have drought resilience um, with, again, with them as well. How can I make sure that I've got a tree that is going to be able to either, does it enjoy being on its own because it doesn't want any competition or do I want a tree that's a woodland edge tree that actually likes to have friends? Because trees, he speaks to another lovely expert I know, Tony Kirk, and he's like, trees are social. He's yeah, like, they are social to each other and yeah, share they, they, and all Yeah, sorts, but, they? exactly. They share they share resources. They'll tell each other if bugs are coming or pests and diseases. This is what's called the, what they feel is called the wood wide web. Um, I love it. You know, which is just great. So they are actually quite amazing. And as we know, when we talk about trees or plants that sulk, you know, they'll sulk if you plant them and then we're in the wrong conditions. I'd sulk if somebody chucked me and in the wrong <laughs> place, you know. It's so sort of fascinating. It's really interesting. And we wanted this book to be something that could be definitely used by professionals because they do plant a lot of trees, a lot of our landscape architects, our you know designers, our landscapers, and so we want it to assist them, but also as well, for the general public, we, yes, there's science in here, but it's not been delivered, I don't think anyway in a way that you go, "Whoa, I don't understand any of that." We've kept it accessible because we believe that we want everybody to understand more about trees and how to select them, be more confident.
0: It's really, really readable. I guess what most people, like talking about Joe and Joe in public here, not like landscape architects and all of that, but if if you're going to plant a tree, you're probably just going to go on aesthetics, which is missing out like 95% of what you need to take into account, right? That is exactly it, Mickey. People,
1: quite rightly, and that is one of the values is I want the tree to look great. You know, I want this to be a fabulous tree. I want it to um be a specimen tree, maybe that's gonna be in the middle of a lawn, et cetera. And that's fine. And and the height spread and what colour flowers it gets are kind of the key go-tos that people choose, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's kind of nothing role of that. But there is if you're gonna sort of roll forward twenty five, thirty, forty years, more of us living in urban settings. That our temperature fluctuation. I mean, we both just sat here and, and with, uh, had had like had biblical rain yeah. falling on me in West London, and then 20 minutes later, you in, in East London. Uh-huh. You know, th- those extremes of temperature and uh, precipitation that we're going to get, we are going to need trees that can cope with that. I was talking to um, the guys and girls at the RHS, uh, Royal Horticultural Society, and they're also looking at these changes across our country because. Before, we're very much a north south upland with our country, you know, the northerners and then the southerners. <laughs> even in and... this
0: conversation,
1: even to be in this Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We're there, you know, exactly. It's your east or your west. And uh, the across the country, north, north, south, east, west, you know, our weather patterns are, are, are quite different. <laughs> so the types of trees that we might need to select going forward, because remember, that we have to roll forward probably for most trees a good 50 odd years before the, the, their capacity comes to, to, to light. Yeah. And if you think about it, all the trees that we love, the big old kids and the ones that are real placemakers, all the people that planted them are probably not even on the planet anymore. No, I didn't get to see it. No, didn't get to see it at all. So I think of all of those amazing landscapes and those Capability Brown and Repton and all those people that have gone before that have done the big placemaking of trees around our country... Well, God no, they they weren't here. You know, some of those, some of our trees are said seven, eight hundred years old. No chance that they'd see them.
0: And so, is the tree landscape? I'm going to just stay in the UK because, as you say, we're we're very different in our like uh, topography and the the weather systems and stuff. Is the tree landscape going to shift because as the climate is changing, we're going to need trees to do different things? Is that correct? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. There is definitely. Reviews that are going on in terms of uh, what trees to plant where. So, for example, the National Trust, they've set themselves up with a a big tree planting initiative across their estates. And of course, a lot of people talk about wanting to only really work without, I think it's about 40 native species, which, you know, would always sound great that you would have native species just living in this country. And because, therefore, native plants. You know, in an ideal world, support native flora and fauna. Yeah, perfect. But as you say, our climate is completely changing, and therefore, some of our um, our trees are not going to be able to cope. So, the, the beloved birch that I mentioned about earlier—they're not great at drought resilience. They're not great. A lot of people we may have seen in that forty-degree summer that we have, when we're all sweltering. It looked like the birches in particular had already gone into autumn in the middle of July because that's a stress. There's yeah. a stress on them that they have to drop their leaves to slow down uh, yeah, the sort of metabolism of the trees, so to speak. So yes, there's definitely a push to kind of have a more diverse planting in our landscape. So we may sort of start to see different types of trees in there. Your listeners may or may not be aware there are certain diseases that have been in, in the national news. So things like ash dieback. So that's a, a, an awful bug that is basically can destroy all of our ash trees and has been destroying a lot of our ash trees across the country. Now, if we just carried on going, right, we'll just have just our natives, one ash tree goes, they're all gone. Yeah so, yeah. so people keep using the word diversity and kind of it goes not just in an, as, a, as a people, but again, back through plants and trees. The more diverse you've got, well, if that tree goes, the next one won't. And I've got one for flooding and I've got one for drought and one for this and one for that. I know that the big tree planting initiatives that are occurring, we're talking to Trees for Cities recently. And again, they try to make sure that they're getting a mix of trees in their plant matrix. Yeah.
0: Oh, another tick in the pro column for diversity. I'm all here for it. Absolutely. There you go. I've ticked the box. <laughs> Standard Issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. So, Eric, you are so knowledgeable and obviously you've, you've done your research, you know your stuff, but you, you also talk about it in a way that is incredibly relatable, which shows just how expert you are in it. Have you always had a green thumb? Have you always had this passion to kind of spread the word? Well, no. And I'm already honest (laughs) about
1: that. The answer to that is no. My sister, she is a gardener, Michelle. And uh, when I first got my house well I'd had a garden before but it's just had hangovers in that really when I was in my 20s <laughs> but when I got my grown up house as it were about 10 years ago and I got my own garden I'd lived in a flat before I thought my sister would come down and she would set the garden up and I would just come home and deadhead and float around with wine and I thought that would be that sounds lovely you know it was perfect when way- gardening but like most people that get into gardening you put your first one or two plants in they don't die and you go oh and you put in another and another. And I was about 44, 45 at the time. And I already said, anyway, I didn't want to be doing fashion at 50. That was my previous career of, of, well, one of my many previous careers. I'd worked in fashion retail for a long time at head offices. And so I said I didn't want to be doing that at 50. So when the time, uh, like I said, I was about 44, I was doing some redundancies at the last place I was working at. And I thought okay it's coming a bit early what am I going to do I mean you know us girls as well we know the change starts occurring uh-huh. the revolving door of like all oh, say starts slowly waving by to, to good old youth and all of that And I thought well what do I love doing at this precise moment and at that moment it was my garden and I just had it for that first season and I'd become like some obsessive and so I just felt if you're going to do something, Carrot, that's going to take you forward because you don't know what it's going to be like after the whole flushes, what, <laughs> what are you going to do? And I just thought, right, oh, I'm going to do gardening. And I woke up in 2012, and literally on January one, I went, right, right, I'm going to become a gardener. And on January two, I went, oh, yeah, I don't know how to do it. <laughs> so that's very much my nickname, I Have a Go, Have a Go Anderson. And that's what I try to do. But I guess I've, I've always been passionate about communication. And uh, I like teaching when I, in my previous jobs, um, when I said retail, I was doing some retail training that I did. I'm also qualified as a holistic therapist. So I used to teach massage and, and stone therapy and stuff like that. And I think that idea of helping people to be as well as they can is something that, as I think as a Virgo, that's just ingrained in me, that, that that's what I, I love. Doing, and therefore, that extends to the planet as well. You know, I couldn't stand here pretending not for a minute of being some Mother Earth person. We were people in fashion that were polluting and yeah. shipping stuff around the world and didn't didn't know. And I kind of try to now be a little bit more. You don't know what you don't know. That's fine, but once you do know, you have a now a conscious decision as Absolutely. to what you're going to do about it. Yeah. And that's the difference. And I think I don't like preaching to people. I don't like wagging fingers at people because we've all got tipping points of what we will or won't do. But I think it's just being able to give people a bit more confidence and the right information so that they can make an informed decision. If I decide to do that, if I decide to put that, I don't know, plastic rule down or whatever it is, I know that there is a consequence to it and am I prepared to kind of live with that consequence? And that's where I think it is, Vicky, that you have to let people come to their own conclusion the minute you try and tell
0: somebody what to do we're all the same the minute my partner tells me to make dinner i can make dinner that night yeah, stubbornness kicks in just on principle <laughs> it's, like, it's not just on principle it's happening. Yeah, Absolutely it? no. so <laughs> within the essential tree selection guide there's very much this this notion of bringing the ecology in our sort of small personal spaces into the ecology in the outer space right yeah so yeah sustainable design is really key here and so I wondered if you had a couple of tips just how to make even the smallest plot the smallest bit of gardening that someone can do sustainable yeah well I think the first thing is um to assess
1: what you've got because often we in life we either look at what we want but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the right thing for us and so we'll Push things uphill. I remember getting my first one of my first plants, this lovely Mechanopsis. It's a Himalayan poppy, and saying, I want that. I love the colour of it. And I plant it in the ground. And guess what? Found out later it's a mountainous plant that likes to have sort of damp, cool conditions. And I put it on the sunny border. And then, kel surprise I've told myself, I'm not a good gardener and I don't know what I'm doing. Part of it is you have to do a little bit of research. And that's a bit about sustainability. I think. There's a lot of hashtag sustainability out there. What I'm learning, and I believe, is that to be sustainable, it does actually take more time because you need to research, you need to make sure that you've got the right material. So in your own little plot, you'd say, okay, am I in a sunny spot? Am I got a lot of shade? When it rains, do I get flooded out or does it drain away very well? So you have to sort of see how the weather in your garden How it affects the existing space that you've got. Where are your darkest, darker, shady areas? Where's your really sunny area? Do you get a wind tunnel that goes through? And so, once you've assessed those, then you can start to say, right, the first rule of good design is don't fight the site. Yeah. So trying to put in, I'm going to have. Um, I did it again in my examples. Oh, I have a camellia bush. That some of you bought me, lovely camellia. Well, camellia is like a more acidic soil. So what people tend to do is, I know what I will do, I've not got acidic soil, but I just put a little bit of compost, acidic compost in there, put the camellia in there, and there you go. And of course, after time, all this acidic compost leaches out and you're back to square one because I haven't got a site that can support camellias. So that's one of the things to do is assess your site Look at all the climatic elements that occur to it. And then you, the, the, the joy of it is then researching the plants and the materials that can help you. So if you've got a, a garden that's really sunny and gets really hot, it wouldn't be advisable to put artificial lawn or artificial deck boards in there because they get incredibly hot. Yeah. They get incredibly hot and they are adding heat into that area. So if you've got a hot air and you want to have shade, I need to bring in more plants. Plants cool the garden. Um, a tree obviously can offer a shade canopy. Other plants as well, even them moving in the breeze, can add to the breeze. Because they transpire, they breathe, they let off the more cooling air. So the more plants you can get into an area um, that's hot can help to cool it down. And say, for example, if you've got really boggy area, Right, I've got to look for now boggy plants, and maybe I can create a pond in this area as well.
0: We're talking about gardening, but you can stretch it out to life when you're like, yeah, you know, what you want isn't necessarily what you need. Well, absolutely, exactly. I think also as well, people have to be clear in their
1: mind what does sustainability mean. Sustainability doesn't just mean recycling; it doesn't just mean that. It's actually that wider thing that says, "Have I taken more out?" And I can put back in within my own lifetime. Effectively, have I robbed the resources for future generations? And that's that's a big issue that we've got now, that, you know, we are doing that. And of course, a lot of people will talk about, you know, let's say clothes, for example, and oh yeah, hashtag sustainable. Well, it's not if we keep producing more cotton out of countries that can't afford the water because a lot of the countries that we take our cotton from, they're the ones that are having a huge, massive environmental impact. And therefore, is it really sustainable? And therefore, upcycling, recycling, reusing, all of those things add into it. But again, we all have a tipping point when we all want to go out and get a new T-shirt. That's yeah. fine. I'm not saying that we don't, it's not trying to take away the joy of life. But we do have to sort of, I guess, challenge ourselves a little bit more in terms of, can I make that myself? Can I buy it locally? Do I actually need it? Is there another way that I can, you know, methodology-wise lay something down? So, you know, in my garden, people might come in and go, well, actually, Eric, you know, you've got paved areas down. And a lot of people obviously would put down lawn. And I have got paved areas because I've got a very small garden. I've got tree cover that actually the lawn now wouldn't really survive in. But I've made sure that the, the, the paving that I've put down has what we call a permeable sub-base, i.e. it allows water to run in to it it's not got a concrete base which would just sit on top so in that massive downpour because i went out there and go went and thought right have i got any i'm looking at this home, showing, seeing scene now have i got any ponding what we call ponding where there's water collecting anywhere and you could come into this garden and if there is no residual water so i'd be, be capturing it in like yeah water butt or the fact that it can seep back into the ground. Right, okay. So it's just, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, so.
0: absolutely. And like taking it back to trees, like the, the sort of fashion for almond milk, which most of it comes from California and there's yeah. no water. And so the almond trees, great, there are trees, but they're not sustainable because they're taking way too much resource. Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, like I said, there's things like oh, I love an avocado. You know, I've, I've
1: stopped having almond milk. I like oat milk. Again, arguably, you could say, well, actually, Ari, you know, there's still a carton involved and there's still transportation involved. Can you make your own oat milk? Not always here to do that, unfortunately. Uh-huh. Prefer it to cow's milk. So you have to kind of, I think, like with any selection, anything that we select and do, what can I do better? And I think the big thing, Mickey, as well, is that a lot of times, you see, people get disempowered by going, oh, well, it's not going to make any difference. If I do that, it's yeah. not going to make any difference. It's only me. The many little me's make up the sum of the whole. Every garden makes up the sum of the whole. So we, our garden cover in the UK covers thousands of hectares. Yeah, not as big as the countryside, clearly, but it's still a sizable amount of land that if we all just did one little extra thing, so I think there's 23 million gardens we estimate. So you imagine all these tree targets, if each of us were able to plant one extra tree, there's 23 million trees planted across the country. We'd all be a custodian of it, so we'd all look after it ourselves, not some poor guy that comes in, digs a hole and disappears off. And so then all of a sudden we become part of something bigger and greater. Yeah. I don't want anybody to ever feel like, oh, I can't make a difference. Do your bit. My mum always, will we were kids, you do not drop litter on the floor. Nope, same I'm 55 odd I still do not drop litter on the floor For somebody else to pick up And to trash my own place quite frankly So all of those little things Make a difference Imagine you know People didn't pick up their dog poop We'd all be like we used to in the 70s We'd be sticking our hands in Lots of awful stuff There's a lot
0: of white dog poo around There's again There's a lot of white That weird
1: that. white Yeah that yeah. weird white dog poo But I think that That's the thing isn't it When everybody makes an effort you actually then start to see the people that don't pick up that
0: stands out more, and it becomes a norm to God, it do something. So thing. weird that that was normal. It feels so yeah. alien, doesn't it? No, I know it. No. You, you talk about twenty-three million gardens in the UK. My, my last question I wanted to ask you was: obviously, there are a lot of people, and this became so clear to us all during lockdown. There are a lot of people who don't have access to a garden, yes, but maybe have like a, a joy and love of plants and want to yes. be involved. How can those people get involved? How can they garden without a garden?
1: Yeah, well, you can. And and absolutely, that's a really important question, an inclusive question to ask, because there's 23 million gardens, there's 63, 4 million of us, and Mm -hmm. we don't all have a garden, so absolutely. Obviously, there has been an uptrend in indoor plants, we know that, which is great. And if you're tending for your plants indoors, don't think that you're not gardening as such. It's your indoor gardens. So that's one way to think about that. But I think the other thing that can be really um, nice is that there will be local community um, groups to join and local gardening groups to join if you really want to be outdoors and sort of put your hand in soil that way. There's things like for trees, for example, one I know of, so I'm sure there are lots of others, but your trees for Cities, for example, there's lots of um, the Tree Council, you know, if you go onto to those sorts of websites and they will tell you about planting that they're doing near you and you can literally volunteer for a day and do it that way. If you live near a school, if only we could get horticulture on the curricula would be the dream. Yeah, because most so schools obvious. do have
0: like a green space and
1: well, they, they garden. They do, they do. But unfortunately, a lot of, well, a lot of inner city schools don't. But the ones that do have green space, unfortunately, because the, 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 you know, our teachers are so stretched, they don't have the extra skill or time to be able to go out and do those areas. So you'll probably, again, I know, you know, can't say that every school would do it, but I would definitely go and speak to a school and say, Is there an area that I can tend or is there an after-school club that can maybe be run if you're a really keen gardener but don't have a garden anymore? I've heard of schemes which seem to work where you have maybe a neighbour, you know, that's got a large garden and you're enviously looking out on it, down out of your window. And you might be surprised that your neighbour might let you share their garden. There was an initiative that, that, uh, what was it called now? Um, Oh my God, I can't remember the name of it. There was a girl that she was connecting people that didn't have gardens with people that had gardens that were either too big or just couldn't look after them anymore. Yeah. And so what they did, this young girl, she lived in a flat. She, she needed it for her mental wellbeing. She set up the, a veg plot in this massive garden because there's mum of three. There was no way that she could do it. And the kids would garden with her at the plot and then they would share the produce and sometimes share a meal. I mean,
0: perfect. Perfect sharing. Yeah. It's, it's like, just so simple. It's science. I don't have the stats ahead of me, so I'm saying science in the very commas and hoping you'll you'll join that, in. That, that, that like putting our hands in the soil is like really good for our health, isn't it? There is a definite science
1: and research that's done in terms of the microbial activity that occurs in the soil that is beneficial to us. So for example, we just did a piece on Gardener's World about artificial lawn. And I was speaking to Dr. Ross Cameron from Sheffield University. And they've been doing some research that looked at the microbial activity in areas like, I say, sort of dead space, i.e. where there's all, all very monoculture spaces. So either around an artificial lawn area or where there's not many species of plants. And then they literally just took a test tube, took a sample of air and went and tested how many microbes were in that. And then they did it around an area that was very species rich and diverse. Lots of different plants, you know, different heights, different textures, different flowers, etc. And the microbial content around that was almost like a donny mixture looking where it was really, really rich. And that's what you breathe in. Yeah. And apparently that's very good for the gut biome. It said that our blood is, I think it's only got one or two different chemical, uh, what's it? it, chlorophyll is very close to hemoglobin.
0: Oh, really? Like, I should, I should, like plant yeah, blood?
1: I, yeah, plant blood. I should actually go and find out what, what little, there's a couple of different molecules, the way that our configuration is for blood, and very, very close. And I think that sometimes um, us little humans, we divorce ourselves. We come into the world, because our mum and dad ate food out of the soil. We come in, we get born, we eat some, and then guess what? We go back in the soil ourselves. <laughs> there you go. There's the closed system. Very simple. Seriously, Eric, so,
0: Kids book. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> I'll make a note. <laughs> so I was thinking about trees because I love them, so it wasn't a hardship. I think my favourite tree was an oak that had been hit by lightning and half of it had died and you could climb in it, but, like, half of it was still going, which always, as a kid, absolutely fascinated me. So, I yeah. mean, I know you've met more trees than I have, but do you have a favourite that you connect to? Well, that connection is
1: similar for me in terms of when I was young. There was an oak tree on our, what we called our green. So I lived in sort of like a cul-de-sac and there was a green out front of the house where we could all play. And my mum would always be, you're not allowed to go past the oak tree. And it was a big oak tree. Like a marker. Yeah, it was a marker. We played, we'd go and sit under its shade. We'd play Tim Tom Tammy. That's where we, that's the furthest point I could go, which was only probably less than a hundred metres when I think about (laughs) it now. It felt massive. And and that absolutely was the kind of dominant tree that was in my childhood. And then because I lived in Hertfordshire, I was quite close to then quickly being able to get out into sort of fields and, and little woods and stuff like that. So trees, I think, are very much in people's lives. They may not consciously think about it, but I, I invite all the listeners tuning into this. Sit back and just think about a tree, like you explained, that you see all the way to work that you've watched its autumn color going you know each season that you saw failed and was really personally upset when you saw it or that you've seen grow you know maybe the is with your children maybe it was a tree that you kind up and fell out of you know there'll be <laughs> some I think there'll be some sort of tree um larka. it might have been the tree you got married under trees are obviously they live with us And they give us life. And I really think that once you tune into that emotional connection, the whole tree huggy bit, that's when you start going, yeah, they're
0: pretty cool beings. I've hugged loads of trees. I love hugging a tree. I got in a redwood. I hugged a tree in Borneo that made a good noise. It was like a drum. Hug trees, people. It's underrated. It's mocked and it shouldn't (laughs) be mocked. (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) The Essential Tree Selection Guide for Climate Resilience, Carbon Storage, Species Diversity and Other Ecosystem Benefits is in association with the Royal Botanic Gardens, Kew. I love that they have Kew Gardens, but no, it's a lot longer. Anyway, it is published (laughs) by Philbert Press and out now. You do some events around it, aren't you? Yeah, we
1: are. I'm not the best on Instagram, I've got to be honest. But I do try and put things up on there so that people can get involved or they can always, you know, just don't don't DM me because I'm really rubbish at looking at the DMs. <laughs> if you put a message on the actual read, I tend to look at those and people can definitely say, oh, what's going on next? And I think I'm doing an, uh, an in-person on the 7th of December
0: when is I, that for I... trouble I think yeah for trouble. Yeah yeah.
1: trouble yeah 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 but that's the seventh I think of December god I'm yes. so rubbish I need I to think it's the seventh
0: of December yeah so and it's people a, become... how to become a tree hugger is how, how they exactly that's <laughs> how they've classified it what is your handle on social media then so people can not dm you
1: well I had to yeah so I um I had to change it because it, it was all a bit obscure so it's just my name really Ara Anderson
0: I've kept it simple. It's been a total joy chatting to you. Thank you so much for sparing some time. Thank you, Mickey. has been great. Thank you. Standard issue
1: for all women.